Hi, I'm Frank Ferris, one of the principals of the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Curriculum. I want to personally thank you for joining us for this module in our series on pain management. All right, well, thank you for being here today. We're going to today kind of take the next step in some of our discussions we've had. So we're going to talk about opioids and hepatic and renal failure. So we're moving beyond a little bit of the um, uh, entry-level information into more intermediate discussions. So I hope today if you have questions that you'll ask, uh, that the information we'll discuss today will hopefully provide some clarity. In some areas, it may, it may actually be good conversation for, for later around, around the water cooler. So what are we hoping to get out of our discussion today? What we're going to hope to talk about is how do both hepatic and renal failure affect the way we expect a medication to respond when it is given. Particularly, we're going to focus on opioids, right? So we know how opioids respond in a patient who's otherwise healthy. Again, even in a healthy palliative care hospice patient population. But how does it look when our patient who is in this frame of end-of-life care, palliative care, now develop either renal insufficiency, hepatic insufficiency, or, or both? So how does our response, how's that going to be different? And then we'll talk about what opioids we should consider first or second in patients who have um, either hepatic insufficiency, renal insufficiency, or, or both. Okay. So, going back, way back, right, to our chemistry days in school and pathophysiology days, some of us remember those better than others, um, right? So, when we look at just very basically about the hepatic metabolism, drug metabolism, right? So, if you look at very basic equation, what this tells us, the clearance of a, a medication from a hepatic standpoint is related to hepatic blood flow, which is the QH, and then EH, which is your, your extraction ratio. So how much of that drug is extracted um, by the liver. So being mindful that most of our medications are primarily metabolized by the liver. Though you will also find that some of those metabolic pathways can occur from uh, places like lung and kidney and other organ tissues. But primarily we're focusing in on, um, for our discussion today, looking at the liver, which is the primary mechanism for drug metabolism. So as we think about what happens um, from a, a metabolic standpoint um, uh, with, with a drug, and what is the efficiency of drug removal, um, and where are the big players, where are the key players on that. So as we look about hepatic blood flow, right, if you're not getting a lot of blood to the liver and you're shunting that away from the liver, you're going to have more drug that has available to be active. Okay, so blood flow is, is mildly important. And as we think about what happens in hepatic impairment, like cirrhosis, you can see that, that shunting away from the liver. What is your enzyme capacity? How efficient are your enzymes? How well are they working? Okay. 
and then plasma protein binding, which we also know is important because we know one, we know that in hepatic impairment you can see uh, changing levels of albumin and other proteins, right? So as we look at mechanisms of drug removal, we'll look, look at primarily phase one metabolism or phase two drug metabolism. So phase one is what we classically think of as that cytochrome P450 system. When you look at drug interactions, if you're going to do a drug interaction tool like on Micromedics or LexiComp, most of what you will see are things that come up are drug interactions that revolve around the cytochrome P450 system. You also have phase two metabolism, which the classic example is glucuronidation. In glucuronidation, we know is less affected by changes in the liver. So thinking about, as we're looking ahead, what sort of things are going to affect our anticipated response to opioids. Then you also have some biliary excretion, elimination as well of, of medications that we have to be mindful of. Okay, so alterations in liver failure. So we know, again, very basically think about pathophysiology. Right, we know that when somebody has liver dysfunction, if we're looking at more chronic liver dysfunction, so going from somebody who has hepatitis into a, more of a cirrhotic state, right, we know what happens in that process is you have damage. Damage causes fibrosis to your, to your hepatocytes, your functional liver cells. That fibrosis, if, if the damage is consistent, now becomes um, more consistent, more long-term. And with that fibrosis, what happens is you change from a very functional liver cell that is doing the things it's meant to do, but from a, both a metabolic standpoint, like a drug enzyme standpoint, as well as a, as a synthetic, synthetic standpoint, and that, that function is now decreased because you have this fibrotic liver cell that cannot do what it normally was meant to do. So what you see is you see reduced intrinsic function of those hepatocytes. One of those would be reduced function of the cytochrome P450 system as well as glucuronidation. We see altered protein binding, right? Think about when we look at somebody who has, again, more chronic liver disease, you will see that steady, that, that steady decline oftentimes of albumin. Right, which we know of that synthetic function of the liver, it's not producing albumin like it once did. So if you have less albumin and you have a drug who's heavily bound to protein, that means you have less protein, more drug going to be available in, in the system to be at the site of action. Portosystemic shunting, so shunting of the blood, right? If you shunt the blood away from your main organ that is meant to metabolize medication, now you have more medication, again, available getting to places that it normally wouldn't have. So we have to think about how do we adjust our medications. And then also we know oftentimes when you have stress on the liver, what is, what is next to go? The kidneys, right? So then we think about hepatorenal syndrome, okay? So this is just a graph that kind of shows you some of the more common hepatic enzymes, the cytochrome 450 enzymes, and what can happen in somebody who has decreased liver function. So here you can see how these isoenzymes, their functionality is decreasing over time with worsening hepatic function. Okay, so do we know directly in relation, can we correlate this to a dose, unfortunately not, but it gives us an idea that we know in more of a chronic liver disease, uh, potentially also in, a, in an acute liver dysfunction, fulminant hepatic failure, you can also see these kind of things happen as well. So, medication management and hepatic failure. Let's look at big picture first. What are our two biggest concerns from a medication standpoint in a patient who has 
hepatic insufficiency or hepatic failure. Two, two big picture concerns. So, so the, the, the response was toxicity. Tell me a little more about what, what I know where you're heading, but what do you mean by toxicity? Um, metabolites of a medication the Okay, excellent. So one big concern is, is the fact that the liver is not functioning well, is it going to affect our anticipated response from said medication? So are you going to have a drug that is now causing more side effects or toxicity because this, the parent compound or its metabolites are not being cleared? Good. So big picture number one. Big picture number two for medications that we worry about is what? So dose adjustment as well. Good. So it's responsive dose adjustment applying into that, implying into that. Is there something happening from a liver standpoint that the, that the liver is affecting said response to medication? The other piece is, is said medication going to potentially affect or further cause damage to liver? Okay, so two pieces to think about. Is said medication going to affect already bad liver? And for what we're discussing today, our opioids have not, we've not consistently seen any data or experience to show that the said opioid affects the already bad liver. Our concern is this liver that is now not functioning well is affecting our response to said medications from an opioid standpoint. Okay? We could talk about other analgesics and that conversation might be a little different. But with opioids, our primary concern is the anticipated response to, to a poorly functioning liver. Okay? So, we don't have a lot of studies that, that give us consensus data on how to manage medications liver dysfunction. And that should be intuitive. How easy would it for us to go to IRB and say, IRB? I am going to study patients with liver failure and how these medications are interacting, right? That is not going to be something that is easily done from a, from a, from a systematic standpoint. So we don't have a lot of studies because they're hard to conduct in patients with, with liver insufficiency, number one. Number two, let's parallel this to renal insufficiency. In renal insufficiency, what do we have to guide us? We're thinking about dosing medications. GFR. Excellent. So a lot of good responses. GFR, creatinine clearance. So those at least parallel the dysfunction of renal impairment. Or they're not they're not obviously directly correlated like one hundred percent, but they give us a really good parallel to follow. We can make adjustments. Well liver with liver failure, we don't have that. We have the child pew classification that just tells it's, it's bad, it's really bad, and it's really bad, right? You have the MELD score, which is more helping us identify when are they going to be appropriate for, a tra uh, for a transplants and those sort of things. But we can't uh, have this great correlation of child pew classification to how we adjust our medications. MELD score to how we adjust medications. Your newer medications that are being um, coming to market or have been on market in the last few years, they have to somehow give you basic recommendations, but what do you think manufacturers are doing when they are studying new medications? When it comes to studying liver impairment, because what you're going to see classically is mild to moderate, very cautious, moderate to severe, avoid. And it's because they are not including those patients in their studies. 
right? If you look at, we'll look at later, oxymorphone is contraindicated in severe liver impairment. It's because they didn't study it. All right, so you have to be very careful when you go to those tertiary resources and you look up liver impairment, that information is only a starting point. Because if you ever, you're going to see the same answer every time. Cautious. Don't use. Well, that's just going to be the same answer you're going to come across. Because we don't have that way to correlate like we do with renal impairment. So what are, we going to, what are we going to consider for dosing? We're going to consider, because we don't have good, consistent consensus guidelines based upon primary literature, we're going to go on what literature we do have, which there is some out there. We're also going to go based upon those drug facts that we do have. We're going to look at what is the, ex the extraction ratio for our medications. So let's think through this intuitively, and we'll go through it in some slides later. If a drug has a high extraction ratio, what does that mean to you? Just intuitively. First pass metabolism. So, so good thought process. So a drug with a high extraction ratio would tell you has a high first pass metabolism, meaning the first time it goes through that the liver, a bunch of the drug is taking away. A good example, and think about this is is so if extraction ratio is one of the things that goes into first pass metabolism, right? They, they, they play together one there. But think about think about morphine. Think about our dosing with morphine. Think about an oral versus IV. What is our conversion ratio we think about? Three to one, which tells you morphine has a high first, first pass metabolism, but it's related to that extraction ratio. It has a high hepatic ratio. So you're thinking about these sort of things. It's going to affect the way we anticipate morphine might, uh, might respond, as well as how we might dose people when we're converting from one drug to another. Enzyme evolved. We've already said the phase one metabolism is more involved than phase two metabolism. They're both affected by liver impairment, but phase one has more, is affected more phase one metabolism than in phase two. And then route administration. All right, if we get something by IV, right, we know the first time around you don't have, you have a higher level of drug because you're not having that first pass metabolism because you're not going through the gut, right? So, again, high, we're looking at these medication characteristics, so high, high extraction ratio are going to be medications that are more affected. Those we're going to be more concerned about dosing. Your intermediate, example of an intermediate extraction opioid would be hydromorphone. Again, so we're kind of, that we're going to have to be concerned about, but not as much as something like morphine, which is, a, which is an example of a high extraction. Then your low extraction opioids are going to be ones you're less concerned about in hepatic impairment because less of the drug is being um, extracted um, from, uh, by the liver. So our administration, we are concerned about our oral opioids more so than we are our IV opioids. right? Because again, when you take it by mouth, that is swallowed has to go through the liver, and that's how we anticipate our, our, our doses. We also have to be concerned about the portosystemic shunting as well. And then finally, thinking about uh, protein binding. Our drugs that are highly protein-bound, an example of, of one of our commonly used opioids is methadone. Methadone is heavily, high, so highly protein-bound. So in liver impairment, if you have less protein, you have to think about how's that going to affect our anticipated response to methadone. And then again, thinking about what, what phase of metabolism are we going through. So case one, paralleling what, what we reviewed this morning with um, using some resources. So I wanted to 
to parallel this. This isn't an opioid dis discussion for this case, but I want you to go through this case one with your folks sitting around you. Take a quick moment and think based upon this basic principles we've talked about, how might you go through looking at some of these basic resources we have, how might you answer this question? So take a moment, talk amongst yourselves, and then we'll get an answer. Okay. All right, so here's some good discussion going on. So let's look at our case here. And we're going to re review the exact same patient on the next slide, and we'll see how things might change. So 55-year-old female with metastatic colon cancer to liver. So her albumin, what does that tell us about her out? What is her, al her albumin looking? Low. So it, it tells us she has maybe some type of, either she's had this cancer for a very long time, and, and she, you know, the synthetic function's not working well. Maybe she, there's a lot of things that are contributing to low albumin. Maybe there is some effect from her liver metastasis. INR, normal, good. So we're looking there. Our bilirubin, ALST are normal. Serum creatinine is apparently normal, right? So we do have to realize we're looking at our serum creatinine. We do have to look in, in the context of renal or of hepatic insufficiency. Sometimes they are lower than anticipated because of those things, but I would also agree this is probably relatively normal. So if you would do a child pew classification, which you could with these numbers that we have, this is actually the thing that would go into child pew, you're likely to get somebody who's what classification? Probably a, like A or B, yeah, but you know, we could go through pro probably A. So good. We look at now, and we want to start searching for uh, as an antidepressant. So the question is, we know it's heavily, heavily hepatically metabolized. It's 98% protein bound. So let's start off, what do you think, a t what did you find in your resources when you looked up about how to dose sertraline in hepatic impairment? What's that? Cautious. Yay! Be cautious. Woohoo, right? So, clinically, you would evaluate this as somebody who probably has mild hepatic impairment, though it's there, it's real, we need to address it. So, our target dose is probably going to be what would you say your target dose would be? So, I see some folks saying maybe 25. I heard other discussion about maybe still looking at 50 being a target dose, potentially in this patient. And the lovely thing with it being cautious is, this is where if we had more time, you might actually pull up, try doing some primary literature search and see what you might find. Um, so looking at this, some people may let's start at 25 milligrams because our big concern with this one is the fact that it's 98% protein bound and we have less protein, so you might have increased free drug. So I think if you start at 25 milligrams once a day, you are obviously going to have to follow up with your patient and see and, and maybe anticipate going up to 50 milligrams. If your target dose was 50 milligrams, you still may start them off at 25 for a week or two to make sure they tolerate okay, then go up on their dose. So the, the frustrating part of this is there's not great answers. The good thing is, is they're not great answers. It's hard to be right and wrong both, right? So, but you could pull back and do some more primary literature. So for time's sake, we'll go through this one together. Same patient, right? Their albumin is still two. Their INR is now 1.7. Their bilirubin, the number obviously now is, is different. AST, LT are a little bit elevated. 
serum creatinine is still there. And we have a child PUFC. We went and kept it on there for you. Same patient, same scenario. Now how do you go about dosing sertraline? We're likely going to be a little more conservative than we were before because you now have somebody who has significant liver impairment. All right, so this might be where if you had more time, you might step back, and I, I know a group had a good question, what is the drug of choice um, in severe hepatic impairment? And they were coming up with classes of drugs, SS, SSRIs, SNRIs were good classes to consider, but then you do have to boil down, go to maybe a tertiary resource and see what can you find, and oftentimes you will end looking at primary literature and coming up with an answer, okay? So, how does impaired hepatic function affect the pharmacokinetics of our, of our medications? And we're going to focus on opioids, right? So going back to our equation, let's go move forward. So we know that hepatic impairment, you can see portosystemic shunting. So how does that affect our anticipated response from medication? If you shunt away from the liver, you're going to have increased oral bioavailability of medications. And thinking about that 3 to 1 ratio for morphine, right? Oral to IV is a 3 to 1 ratio. What's going to happen to that ratio now? It is, it, is, it is coming smaller, right? Because you are shunting blood away from the liver and more morphine is getting to the site of action the first times around, first few times around, right? And also thinking about metabolites will be important as well. So with morphine, and is a high, again, is a high extraction um, Medication, hydromorphone is intermediate. Fentanyl is another high extraction um, opioid that we, we would be worried about here. Portosystemic shunting, right, is, is, a, is a concern. So maybe we start at lower doses because we're assuming the higher, again, the higher bioavailability. And we also have to look at our, our established equilangistic doses, and maybe they're not likely to fit in these patients. So if you're converting somebody from IV morphine to PO, that again, we have to be very aware that ratio is probably not three to one, okay? That probably holds true for hydromorphone as well. It might hold true for some of our other opioids that, that, that we're thinking of, okay? So distribution, the protein binding. Again, decreased protein binding is gonna be important for those opioids that have high protein binding. Because if you don't have if less protein, more free drug, more free drug means more drug at site of action. Okay? So you decrease pr production of those things we've talked about, increase free drug, right? And that is going to affect things like methadone and buprenorphine. So what are our implications? How is, it, how is this going to affect the way you are approaching your patients? Excellent. So this goes back to the same answer. Start low and go slow, which is the case. But think about methadone already. We've already said with methadone, we normally are looking at that five to seven day window, right, on average. So now maybe you're, you're definitely looking at seven days, even not longer, before we're comfortable making dose adjustments. Okay? Thinking about metabolism. Right, hard for us to predict exactly how, how metabolism will be affected by liver impairment, but we know phase one is more affected. 
So our opioids, again, we've got them listed with mild hepatic impairment. There's not a, not a large concern. With moderate hepatic impairment, uh, we see that coding, that we're not commonly recommending coding for pain management anyway. Oxycodone is there as well. What we are going to see when we get to our renal impairment coming up here is some of these drugs we, we know have active metabolites. But as we, as we take a step back and we think about this, most of our opioids, we're worried about, about the side effects of the parent drug or side effects of the metabolites. But with codeine, if you are using it, you're also worried about the fact that codeine by itself has what kind of analgesic effects? Codeine as a parent drug has what kind of analgesic effects? None. Yes, minimal to none. So it's a prodrug. So thinking about it has to be converted to morphine before you're going to see any appreciable effects from codeine. So it's going to greatly affect our anticipated response from a, from a therapeutic standpoint. You're still going to get all the lovely side effects from codeine, but you may not get those analgesic effects from codeine. So it's a drug why we're already not probably commonly recommending in the first place. There's another reason hepatic pain would probably to avoid. Okay, and then oxycodone we know is metabolized by 3A4 as well as 2D6. Um, each of those, you have noroxycodone and then oxymorphone metabolism, which can maybe affect your anticipated response. Then, then in severe hepatic impairment, you can see um, and in moderate, several other lists there in moderate impairment as well. And then by the time you get to se severe hepatic impairment, all of your opioids obviously will have been affected by the time you get to se severe hepatic impairment. The question is, from a metabolism standpoint, how much? So what you're going to lean on are those medications that have phase two metabolism. Your phase two metabolism will be less affected. Now it's going to be morphine, hydromorphone, as well as oxymorphone. Those are your drugs that go through phase two met metabolism, glucuronidations, so they have less effect in hepatic impairment. Okay? So metabolism will affect, again, potentially not only the parent compound, metabolites, maybe how long, additionally, not only a dose, but how long opioids are hanging around. So questions, thoughts, comments? Yes, question? Been, um, kind of working this through in my mind. Um, so when you have your hepatic impairment, so, so I'm kind of balancing the protein binding issue compared to the effect of the ability to do the glucuronidation. And um, do they balance out to a certain extent? Is that why in mild hepatic impairment you don't really have to have major dose adjustments? Is that kind of what's happening there? Or is there something else going on? Am I thinking about that correctly? Yeah, so the question is, is as we're putting this, all the pieces of these puzzles together, how do we account for and adjust for each of these things we've talked about coming together? So it's mild hepatic impairment, the way that the, when we look at the extraction ratio, protein binding, from what information experience we have, we have not seen a clinical significant response to our opioid medications. To your answer, I don't ha to your question, I don't have a great answer to, do they, does the protein binding balance this metabolism process? We don't have a great answer to that. I don't have a great answer to that, not that I've seen it in literature. We've just seen from what little information we have from review guidelines as well as some, some small case reports, we, don't, we have not seen that effect. 
Now, I will tell you, you, might, you still might see some additional side effects. Because if you think about somebody with hepatic impairment, one of the biggest uh, symptoms we worry about in hepatic impairment is what? That's going to be affected by opioids. Encephalopathy. So you still might want to be aware of additional side effects, even in mild hepatic impairment, but maybe it's not affecting how we dose. So, there, so if we think about hepatic impairment, no matter what level of hepatic impairment, we know that our opiates are going to potentially be worsening encephalopathy, precipitating it, or maybe unmasking encephalopathy. Okay. So fentanyl, we know, is heavily, heavily metabolized by CYP3A4. Right, Nine, 97 to 99% of met, or fentanyl, depending upon research you look at, is metabolized by CYP3A4 to enact metabolites. So, as you think about fentanyl, it is a drug that is greatly, that we believe is greatly affected by hepatic impairment. Do we have great studies that, are, that consistently show us this? How do we account for that? No, we do have some studies that, that we know that show us that fentanyl is, is effective and we must modify our dosing strategy and mechanisms, but not enough to show us how much. Okay. So excretion. So how is excretion affected by hep uh, the impaired hepatic function? So biliary excretion can be one where, where you might see our drugs are affected, and you're going to go back to buprenorphine and methadone. So uh, of our pathways, this is important, but still probably as we're, as we're comparing them, this is a lesser of, of those that are impacted, but still something to be mindful of. So you can see potentially increased levels and extended half-life with methadone and buprenorphine due to the impairment of biliary excretion. So I think, again, something to be aware of. Okay. So opioids and hepatic impairment. We used to have language that said preferred. Preferred, consider, avoid. So after discussing this with some colleagues, I think it's important that we say consider first, consider second. And the reason I said it's because in my experience, when we had drugs that said preferred, people thought preferred meant safe. And we don't want people thinking preferred means safe. These drugs still have major concerns and side effects we have to worry about. So what drugs do we consider first in hepatic, what opioids do we consider first in hepatic impairment? Morphine, right, phase two metabolism, less affected. Right, again, we're looking at hepatic impairment in a bubble. Right? Hydromorphone, phase two metabolism. Oxymorphone's got a big question mark there, right? If you look at package insert and resources, it's contraindicated in hepatic impairment. Though it also goes through phase two metabolism. So we know it's less affected by hepatic impairment. So the other thing that you see with morphine is and if you talk to folks who have practiced for a long time, they will tell you we have the best level 4 evidence, which means level 4 evidence is what? Experience. Right or wrong, people will fall back on their level 4 evidence, which is experience. So we know how it behaves from seeing it used before. So this comes to the one drug I've not discussed, and this is methadone. We have it as a considered first. This is the most bipolar drug when you read about it in all of your different papers, right? So why do we consider it still as a first-line option in hepatic impairment, a, a considered first? 
It's because when it's metabolized, it is metabolized by several different isoenzymes. So you spread the wealth on how it's being metabolized. Okay, but the, also the concerns come up for it's heavily protein bound, so you're going to have increased concentrations there. It is also bilirubin excretion is modified. Some resources will tell you that the liver is a reservoir for methadone. So how's that impact it? So if you are going to be using methadone in hepatic impairment, you just want to make sure you're being more con conservative with your dosing and more, consider more conservative of how you would adjust. This is one where if you put a room of seasoned palliative care and hospice clinicians together, you're probably going to have a lot of great debate. In fact, my colleagues and I had great debate on this, on this conversation, okay? Consider second are going to be fentanyl. Again, fentanyl is heavily metabolized by CYP3A4, so we know your anticipated response is going to be affected. The lovely thing, though, comparative to all of our other opioids, is once it's through the liver, guess what? Our hands are clean because it's metabolized to norfentanyl. Norfentanyl is inert, inactive. We don't have to worry about it. So I have come from institutions and practices where some of these opioids have been flip-flopped for some of the reasons you can see that we're, that we're discussing. So be aware, that's why we consider it a second. Oxycodone as well. It's metabolized to two different, two different pathways, 3A4 and 2D6 to other medications and buprenorphine's got a big question mark. We just don't have enough experience with buprenorphine to know really where it's going to lie and how is it affected, but it might be an option. So coming to some of our general summary points for hepatic um, uh, failure is start with lower doses like we've talked about, titrate slowly to effect. Attempt to use those that go through phase two metabolism, morphine and hydromorphone, potentially oxymorphone. Then our IV to PO ratios, conversions, are not going to be what we are used to. So three to one for morphine is much smaller. Right, depending upon what resource we have for hydromorphone, four to one, five to one, or three to one, depending upon what you look at, it's still going to be a smaller ratio based upon the fact that you have more drug orally going through than what normally you would see going through the system. Okay. So drug interactions now are going to be more relevant. So more often than not, in a relatively healthy patient, you don't see drug interactions being, from a pharmacokinetic standpoint, being a, a large concern. Pharmacodynamically, we always worry about drugs that have the same side effects adding together. Right? It's the old adage of somebody give morphine, they get tired, um, they also get nauseous, and they have itching. Right, so we give them Phenergan for the nausea and Benadryl for the itching, and now their sleepiness goes from really kind of sleepy to a very compliant patient. Right, they're not doing anything now because they're sleeping too well. Right, those interactions are always important. Pharmacokinetically, you don't see that normally being an issue, but now with, with hepatic impairment, pharmacokinetic drug actions become very important, particularly with drugs like fentanyl. If you have impaired 3A4, you throw a drug that's also going to inhibit 3A4, now you have a really difficult scenario. So be aware of drug interactions and hepatic impairment. Then steady state is going to be affected in hepatic impairment. It may take longer than expected. 
like we've insinuated it with methadone, where we might say five to seven days, maybe we're going to look at a little bit longer, like seven to 14 days as an example. Do we have great literature and experience to guide us? There is some out there, but not consistently that we can give you this wonderful, nice algorithm, which I wish we had. So questions about opioids and hepatic impairment. So one of the discussions we had several weeks ago was about how we dose opioids, right? And that we often, I have a colleague say, here's what I have, here's the patient information, what dose would you get, right? We don't, we don't cue them up with what dose we calculated, right? Same thing oftentimes when we have somebody with severe hepatic impairment, I might say, here's the patient, I have what I believe might be a good drug, I want you to evaluate this patient so we can talk about them. Because maybe they found a piece of information that changes our thought process. So when you're dealing with somebody with severe hepatic impairment, I think it's good that we come together and we have a healthy discussion. That's why I would say consider first, because maybe I came up with morphine and a colleague came up with methadone, and there are factors that we need to discuss further that shift us one way or the other. That's why we say consider first, consider second, okay? So questions before we're going to move on to renal impairment? I hope I don't say hepatic too many times in renal. Uh, I've got hepatic on the brain, right? <clears throat> all right, so as we think about alterations, again, we're looking at how is the pharmacokinetics of our drugs going to be affected in renal impairment. We're going to go through this first slide pretty quickly. We know that absorption and distribution can be altered in renal impairment though they may have implications in the way we anticipate dose response. They're more often not minor when, we, when we're going to get to looking at the excretion components. So absorption and distribution can be affected in renal impairment, and they, and they, may, have, uh, uh, they may have implications on our dosing, but more often not when we look at renal failure, we're going to get to the elimination piece. Again, being aware that some drugs do have metabolism that comes from C, C, cytochrome P450 enzymes from the kidneys, just like you can see some drugs have CYP50 enzymes in the liver, I mean in, in the lung. But the majority of our metabolism comes from the liver, which is why I focus on the metabolic pathway from the liver. But our biggest concern is how are these drugs getting out of the body? So we know that in renal impairment, the biggest concern of PK is going to be elimination, excretion of the medication and said metabolites. So here, thankfully, we have some guidance. And our guidance for excretion is going to be what? GFR, GFR creatinine clearance, right? And those folks listening here today and listening later are probably much better at that than I am. We're not going to go through a, a, this great discussion of that. We know it's an estimation, right? And we know that at times that estimation is going to be thrown off, and we have to look at that number like we talked about with hepatic impairment. Your serum creatinine, and if you're looking at serum creatinine to calculate clock clock off, maybe we have to be cognizant of that's not the best number to be utilizing. Do you round up? Do you round down with serum creatinine on clock cough cough, right? All those things we know can affect our numbers. We know it's an estimate. 
right? So we're going to take that and move forward with that. We do know that the, the, the lower your GFR is, the worse your creatinine clearance is, we know that that is going to correlate to oftentimes how much we have to consider, how much we have to dose reduce our medications, right? It's going to correlate to, to that piece, okay? So let's go through this case together and again, pairing up with what we talked about earlier using our drug information resources. You have a 67-year-old patient with a past medical history of CHF, diabetes as well as CKD. They have significant burning and tingling in both their feet and legs. Outside the better judgment of your clinical team, you're going to start gabapentin anyway, right? We might choose a different neuropathic pain agent. Well, that's, for, that's a different discussion, different day. Uh, but we choose gabapentin. The question is, what dose do you start, and what will be your anticipated target dose? So take a moment with the people sitting around you and come up with your start dose as well as potentially your anticipated target dose for this patient. So I'll give you a moment to talk amongst your friends. We will assume this is a Caucasian patient. Thank you. <laughs> For calculation standpoint, we'll assume that they are a Caucasian patient. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> All right, let's talk about now. Let's come back together and discuss our case here. So, again, in our um, discussions for what we've talked about. So there are several places you might start. You might start with some tertiary resources, and then once you, depending upon the confidence of your answer, maybe you go to some primary literature resources as well. So step one for this guy was calculating what? Creatinine clearance or GFR, yeah. So, and this is where you can see some differences based upon formulas used, all that sort of thing, but what kind of creatinine clearance did we get? 25. 25, good. So thankfully for our dosing parameter, that gets us in, in a dosing range when you look at some of our, our um, tertiary resources. So what kind of dose range did you find for gabapentin? Two to 700, Two to 700 given daily. once daily. So how would you start in this patient? Low. Low, yes. <laughs> and there's not really a wrong answer here. Giving this patient what I see, I'm going to guess they probably are going to be sensitive to medications and side effects. So maybe start off 100 milligrams at bedtime. Maybe do 200 at bedtime. Whatever you're going to choose, I would start low. Knowing how these medications work and being experts in, in, this, in the field, I would tell the patient, we anticipate that this medication is going to help your pain. We also anticipate that um, we might have to adjust your dose a month or two because because of your your medical conditions we have to go low and we may need to adjust it in a month or two depending on your response so I'm going to tee up my patients so that if they come back in a month and it's not working that they haven't given up because it may take some time to find that dose that works for them and I would probably be titrating no more frequently than every week maybe every two weeks um, and just being very careful of side effects in this patient. Yes, question. Would you ever consider titrating faster if they are in the hospital? So 
So question is, would you titrate quicker if they're in a place that is where they are under observation? And the answer is yes. The more observation a patient has, the more likely you can titrate quicker because you, you obviously you can see and respond to side effects quicker. I still wouldn't be cavalier, but I, I wouldn't necessarily wait you know, a week or two. Um, you could be a little quicker if need be. But the, the, the whole piece is still, when do you anticipate to see full benefit when you're dealing with neuropathic pain? Full benefit can take anywhere from, on average, of three to six weeks, depending upon what resource you look like, to see full benefit. Right? So being, also being aware that dose changes you make, you might not see full benefits for down the road, but the big thing is how they're tolerating it right off the bat. Okay? So again, we talked about these pieces to summarize what we've talked about. So there are medications um, uh, that are, uh, the number of medications completely or almost completely removed um, by the kidneys, excreted by the kidneys, is very small, thankfully. Though, if you look at any drug that it, greater than 30% of the drug is eliminated by excretion unchanged, then you need to adjust your dose. So if you're looking at, again, at 30% of your drug, and you, and you have to start off something about metabolites, how, how those are going to be affected, if greater than 0.3 or 30% of your drug is eliminated by renal excretion unchanged, probably about modifying your drug. This is why you're going to see controversy with oxycodone. Right, oxycodone, you know, is one of those, it's probably okay in, in, in renal impairment, but is it the absolute best option? Maybe not. Because again, depending upon what resource you look at, it's between 10 and 19% of oxycodone is excreted unchanged in the urine. So you're getting, beginning to approach that 30% kind of window, right? So that's why when you look at oxycodone, oftentimes we tell you it is okay in renal, renal failure. And, and it is okay, but being aware that sometimes folks will respond differently than what you might anticipate. So all, metab all opioids are metabolized, right, in the liver to some extent and then excreted by the kidneys. So we've already alluded to, we have to not only worry about the parent compound, but what metabolites do we have that may also kind of muck up our process. Okay, in renal failure, your opioid of choice and your dosage is based upon the accumulation of both the active drug and any metabolites they may have. Okay, so we look at those that are affected. These are broken down for you. We have already talked about codeine. Codeine itself, right, is a prodrug. So it needs to be metabolized in morphine before you see any therapeutic benefits. Okay. Then we look at hydrocodone. Hydrocodone in itself is an active medication, though it does have active metabolites like hydromorphone. Minor player in the process, but it is it is a metabolite that's involved. Oxycodone has both oxymorphone and noroxycodone. Oxymorphone is more the one we more worry about from a how does it affect our anticipated response, both therapeutically and side effects. Tramadol, going back to our hepatic discuss, discussion, tramadol in itself also, when you're looking at its mechanism, if you're looking at the mu effects from tramadol, we're not talking about the, the central effects from serotonin and potential norepinephrine, but if you're looking at the, the, the mu effects, tramadol in itself is a pro-drug. It is de desimethyltramadol that interacts with mu. So tramadol in itself is a pro-drug, okay? And realizing desimethyltramadol still is a very, very weak opioid agonist. 
Okay, it is. That's why when I do, like when I talk about pain in general, I call it my tweener drug. It's kind of like an opioid, kind of not like an opioid, right? We, in pharmacology textbooks, we consider an opioid, but in practice, we consider that tweener in between that, okay? 384 metabolites going through there as well, you can kind of see. And then so you can see some of the advantages of fentanyl and methadone here are inactive metabolites. So you can see as we look at renal impairment how we're probably going to be shifting some of our recommendations if we look at renal impairment in, in a bubble. Okay, metabolism, again, looking through the conjugation pathway. So morphine, we've already, I know you've, you've probably heard this before, morphine is, is, is glucuronidated, you get M3G. Approximately 50% of morphine is glucuronidated to M3G. That, that's a big number, right? That tells you why we are going to be very cautious about using high-dose morphine or using it chronically in some renal impairment. Okay, M6G is about 10%. These are all approximate numbers. Don't go look it up and tell me, well, it literally says 48%, giving you approximate numbers, right? M6G is approximately 10%, which is the active drug. It has an active um, analgesic effect, and in fact, it has a longer duration of effect than does morphine. In fact, they're studying M6G as an actual analgesic drug. Okay? Hydromorphone, you're looking at hydromorphone, it goes goes through the glucuronidation. You also get H3G. About 30%, again, approximately, of hydromorphone goes to H3G. So you're beginning to see some cautionary tales with these agents in renal impairment. Oxymorphone, again, has some uh, metabolism there as well, though we don't know functionally if the metabolites are causing any, any problems. Again, buprenorphine there um, is, is glucuronidated and may have some effects as well. Active metabolites are listed here for you. So, and, and we have to worry about not only the parent drug, but what active metabolites are hanging around, which is, which is why this might affect our dosing frequency as well. Maybe, maybe, maybe we extend our duration out a little bit because of these active metabolites are hanging around and affecting the, 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 our, our clinical picture. Toxic metabolites, right, meparidine, we know for all intents and purposes for pain, we're not recommending it for pain. Other issues, you know, are, are, are there, other things you can use it for. Again, from a toxic metabolite standpoint, we have pretty good um, experience as well as some, some literature that supports M3G and H3G are, are, are toxic metabolites, which we'll get into opioid-induced neurotoxicity here coming up here pretty, pretty quickly. Okay, speaking of, right, opioid-induced neurotoxicity. So this is when you get neuroexcitation that is what we believe to be caused by the opioid and or their metabolites. This is an area in the last five years you've seen a large advancement in literature. And there are some camps who believe that neurotoxicity is unrelated to metabolites. I think most would, of us would say that we know the metabolites are contributing to this pathway. They're not the sole cause, but we know they contribute significantly to the opioid-induced neurotoxicity. So what is that, right? When do we see this? This is when you see that patient, and we're getting almost always a phone call, it's too late. Like literally one time I got a phone call when I worked in Las Vegas. We are literally out of morphine. We want to know if they call the hospice. You can supply us with some Dilaudid. We've used all the morphine we have on a patient. Maybe you ought to call us before you got to this point in time. 
So what happened, right? Patient was having a lot of pain. Well, what dose were they on? Well, they were on 100 milligrams of IV morphine. And I already know what path they were going down, right? Well, what happened in the last week? Well, they went from 200 to 400 to 800 milligrams of IV morphine an hour. And all the time, their pain is getting worse. Okay, right, like, like something that we are well aware of that can happen. So what you begin to also see is myoclonus. And clinically, having seen this uh, frequent times in, in hospice, sometimes myoclonus can be hard to detect. And I don't have any sort of literature to support this, but oftentimes what I do is when I'm introducing myself, I'll shake, if I, we think there's a problem, I'll shake their hand, a patient's hand, and by shaking their hand does two things. If I just gently squeeze, and you're gonna exaggerate a response, you know they're having hyperalgesia, but sometimes you can actually feel, you can feel just a little bit of, of twitch when you're, when you're shaking their hand. Maybe they're having some myoclonus that you can't quite see that's obvious to you. So that's why a little bit of clinical pearls I'll do for thinking that maybe they're having this open-induced narcissus. I'll just, I'll just very briefly um, shake their hand, or I'll walk by on their leg and say, hey, Mr. Smith, and walking by, I'll kind of rub my hand over the leg, and you can see some things there as well. So delirium that is unexplainable if you have high opioids. Seizures. Thankfully, I've never seen somebody seized from opioids, but we know it can happen. You, you can see it reported in literature. Then the big clue, the obvious clue, is hyperalgesia and allodynia. You walk in the room and just opening the door, and the breeze from the door causes the patient to startle. Right? What I often call allodynia is a sunburn pain. Right? That's the best way I can equate it to people who aren't have that medical knowledge. If I pat your arm and you don't have a sunburn, hey, how you doing, Mr. Smith? Like, they don't care. If you have a sunburn, you pat somebody, what's happening? You're getting smacked, right? Don't, don't touch me, right? Because you have that exaggerated response. And we believe the metabolites are part of that, of that process. Right? They accumulate in the CNS. You see over-involvement and activation of glutamate when you have opioid-induced neurotoxicity, the hyperalgesia process, right? So your sensitivity to pain is being dropped. You are more sensitive to things, and we believe that glutamate is involved in that process. And that's why when we look at it, treating opioid-induced toxicity, our therapies will oftentimes targeting, will target glutamate as, as well in, in, that, in that NMDA receptor. Risk factors, impaired renal function, because we believe that impairment of the excretion of metabolites built and then building up or contributing to that process. Higher doses, longer duration, all play into this risk of opioid-induced neurotoxicity. Again, thinking about the parent compound of metabolites building up. So with that being said, what do you think are our opioids with the highest risk of causing opioid-induced neurotoxicity? Morphine. Yay! What else? Hydromorphone. Hydromorphone, yes. Hydromorphone, morphine are probably the two that we've seen most. And part of that is by, I know you hate by, by what we see, but there's also the opioids we, we use the most, right? So opioid-induced neurotoxicity can occur with any opioid when you use it for long enough and high enough doses. But when you're looking at risk category, Morphine and hydromorphine are probably your highest risk agents. Your lowest risk are probably going to be what two opioids? Fentanyl, Fentanyl and methadone. methadone. So when you're thinking about as a treatment standpoint, when we're rotating people from opioid-induced neurotoxicity, those are great drugs to consider. Now practically that can also be difficult depending upon your patient population. 
You can also begin to think about why is methadone an attractive drug for open-induced neurotoxicity. Excellent. NMD activity is going to help counteract that. So when you are dosing somebody for opioid-induced neurotoxicity, a little clinical pearl for this lecture is you have to be very, very careful. Because at what point in time were you treating pain versus were you treating side effects of opioids? And if you know that, wonderful. More often not, we don't. So when you're calculating doses for opioid-induced neurotoxicity and you're converting, you are cutting back drastically, at least 50% of your opioid, because you don't know at what point in time am I treating a legitimate pain versus was I, was I fighting this pathway the whole time. And for using methadone, you're also targeting part of what we believe is the cause. Okay? So treatment, you rotate your patient, you dose reduce if possible, like if you have no other choices and you are stuck, and I have been stuck before, between the proverbial rock and the hard place. I had somebody um, on a patient my very first day starting, never met anybody in the team when I was in Knoxville, walk in and they're on a 100 milligrams of IV Dilaudid an hour. I met out in the parking lot because like we were told the young kid was, a new, was starting, the pharmacist was starting today, I'm like, yeah, you think that was me? Why well, I look like I'm a young kid, right? So we have a pain, the pain like nurses in pain, we have a patient who has 100 milligrams of IV Dilaudid. So I'm talking with the physician and we're going through, what do we have available? And that's the response that I got. Well, we have fentanyl patches available. Well, I need about 38 of them, please, right? <laughs> so what we did is, because we literally had nothing else available at this point in time, nothing else available. We cut their Dilaudid back drastically, put on a handful of fentanyl patches, and just prayed, right? Because we literally had nothing else. So sometimes you get stuck. So sometimes we reduce the dose as much as we could not to induce severe withdrawal, slapped a handful of patches on and, and prayed, right? Because this patient had renal failure, hepatic failure, they were in hospice, you had, we had no IV access, they had anasarca out the jahu, so we couldn't give them sub-Q fluids. So this was like worst case scenario, right? You would normally hydrate them. Um, if, if it's appropriate, it's not going to worsen their lung condition. Maybe you consider benzodiazepines for myoclonus. Benzodiazepines, though, you have to worry about added side effects. And if delirium is really bad, consider antipsychotics. Okay? Opioid-induced neurotoxicity is that intermediate approaching that experience level when you're dealing with that. Again, you, when you're having that, you're talking about your whole team approach for this. So opioids and renal failure summary. Here's our active metabolites. Be aware of those as well as other things. Yeah, questions about opioid-induced neurotoxicity? Is there a role for Presidex as a management therapy? So good question. So the question is, is there, is there a role for Presidex in opioid-induced neurotoxicity? I cannot speak from, I've not done a recent literature review. I don't know if there's any data to suggest that. And if I have colleagues in the room, if you have other information you've read, let me know. But if you have somebody who is purely like, they are extremely delirious, their pain is wild out of control, you know, options, there might be a role to help keep them mildly sedated in the process, but I can't speak from a clinical trial standpoint. Anybody else in the room have any experience with that? Yeah. yeah. We use Presidex or clonidine as part of our, as an adjuvant medication, and we tend to, to avoid these high doses, we tend to use more than one agent at the time. Excellent. So, yeah, yeah. so from a, re from a repeating standpoint, 
um, in a pediatric population, and it makes sense, you're seeing a shift in this as well. Um, you're seeing use of multimodal pain management, use of additional agents to prevent getting to that point in time. Things like clonidine and Presidex, and you see this being used sometimes in the ICU and other, other avenues. You'll see it used for pain management, not as a singular agent, but added on to other therapies to try to minimize having these increasing or rapidly increasing dose of opioids. Okay, but in the actual treatment of opioid-induced neurotoxicity, not unless you're trying to induce a mild level of sedation so the patient's not suffering so much. Okay. So active metabolites, toxic metabolites like we've talked about. So this is a, a, a summary for both hepatic failure, renal failure, and then the tri, or the bifecta, I guess the trifecta is hepatorenal syndrome, right? Now what do you do? Uh, there is not a great answer for these patients, right? So we've kind of taken hepatorenal, we've taken what, again, you find some small case reports, you find some decent um, potential guidelines, not guidelines, but review articles on this, and this is where we put a lot of heads together, and again, if you put 10 people, 10 positive care clinicians in, in a room, you might get 10 different opinions, but this is what we feel comfortable with teaching all is a good place to consider for having to start first, consider first, methadone, right? We know it has some concerns, hepatic impairment, but once you, get, once you get through that, we know renally it's a better drug, right? Methadone is excreted, a, a percentage of methadone is excreted in the feces. So we know that in renal impairment, it's a, it's a better option than others. It also has inactive metabolites. Hydromorphone, right? We know it's kind of a E drug, like it's one we do consider first, line, for consider first in hepatic impairment. We know it might have some toxic metabolite, but it's less, you get less H3G than you do get M3G in that metabolic pathway. Again, these are all things that when you are in a paterino and you're being consulted, this is why we have a team. You consider first, you look at your patient, you talk through this scenario together. I, we don't have a pretty algorithm to go down because we don't have enough literature to support giving us a consensus recommendation. Okay? So, let's go through some cases together. When you talk about opioids, renal failure, I think we've, we've, kind, of, we've kind of gone through this, this discussion already. So case four. So let's do this first one together, and then we're going to go through a couple more of these. I'll let you guys take some time. So 57-year-old male with stage C alcoholic cirrhosis, made up for an esophageal bleed, right? So we also have some major concerns there that could be a potential palliative care emergency. Um, they're at home. He, at home, he was on oxycodone, 50 milligrams Q4, taking out four doses a day. He's now NPO because of the esophageal, potentially the variceal bleed, right? So, in this situation, what is our primary concern with this patient? So, this alcoholic cirrhosis patient, where would you say, not anything else, what would you say about the liver function? Poor. Yeah, poor, right? So, now the question is, from an IV standpoint, let's go ahead and pull, use our little cheat sheet here. What would you consider first, because we've identified hepatic impairment, what would you consider first for this patient? Excellent. So from our audience, we said either hydromorphone or morphine, because we know we want an IV medication, and maybe methadone is not the right drug in this patient because 
we don't quite know where they're going to land from a necessity standpoint. So we're going to consider those drugs are going to be easier for us in this circumstance to titrate. And here in the U.S., we don't have oxymorphone available IV that I'm aware of. We do have it available. But most places don't. Okay, so oxymorphone is now available IV. It's just not very much carried. Oxymorphone, if you do ever use it, is the most potent IV opioid we would have. Well, other than fentanyl, but from a milligram standpoint, oxymorphone IV is very, very, very potent. Okay, but we don't functionally have it available. So good. We would consider hydromorphone or morphine in this patient. So the question then is, what dose? So 15 milligrams of oxycodone is equal to how much morphine? If you're going to go based upon a conversion. 22.5 right milligrams of morphine equivalents. And that, if you all want, you all know the fast way to do that. Have you figured out the fast way yet to do that? Okay, don't. If, if you, yeah, I get yelled at later it's because I've taught you the fast way already. We're not supposed to, right? But right, if you look at that, so we know that it's uh, 30 milligrams of morphine is 20 milligrams of oxycodone. That's a 1.51 ratio. Just take half your dose, add it on, and you get your morphine equivalents that way. That's the that's the cheating way. Okay. Yeah, but don't get me in trouble later. Okay. okay. So we know it's a 30 to, 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 to 20 ratio, 30 morphine to 20. That's a 1.5 times 1 ratio. Mm -hmm. So you know when you go from oxycodone to morphine, the number's always going to be bigger. Mm -hmm. So you take half of your oxycodone dose, add it, so you add 7.5 to 15, you get 22.5 morphine equivalents. That's the cheating way. That's why when we're rounding, I just gave you why, my, why I look so smart all the time. How's he doing in his head? Well, that's how I do it in my head so fast, right? Okay. So now you convert that to hydromorphone, and you're going to get approximately what? So you got 22.5. Yeah, you're going to get approximately 1-ish. So you're going to evaluate your patient, and you're going to start off with a 1 milligram dose is probably what I'm going to consider, depending upon other clinical circumstances. Maybe you decrease a little bit, but we'll say 1 for, for kicks and giggles, right? So... All right, patient now has used six doses of IG, IV hydromorphone in the last 24 hours. They're going to be discharged, no more bleeding. He feels that this, this works better. The hydromorphone works better than his oxycodone, and he wants PO hydromorphone at home. So the one milligram dose is working, IV. Classically, and this is where we're going to have some differences based upon opioid card, but if in not looking at hepatic impairment, what dose would you put them on from a PO hydromorphone standpoint? Five. Five milligrams. Some might say four, right, depending upon what ratio you're going to look at. Some might say six. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of variants here, but let's say five. Now, how would that be different in this scenario? The oral bioavailability Correct. Changes. The oral bioavailability is going to change some with hydromorphone. So that means you're going to have more of the drug that's going to be available coming through the first time around, right? So as you are thinking about these, you have to again equate how would I modify my dose based upon we know those ratios aren't what they once were. Okay?
So case five, take a minute amongst yourselves and think about how you might approach this patient. So the quote, yeah, case four. So we can pull around the room. Let's see, what would you start this patient on? For those of you, take a step back to the, yeah. When you said one, to, where did the five come from? On which one? Oh, on, on so, depending upon so a hydromorphone, IV hydromorphone to PO hydromorphone, right? So if you look at your cards, if you look at our, their, the table here. Um, see, 7.5 to 1.5, it's a 5 to 1 ratio. Some will use, I've, I've literally seen anywhere from 3 to 6 published with hydromorphone. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. And that's why this is where there is some difference between Ohio Health and, and Ohio State's tables. But with hydromorphone, I have literally seen 3, three to 6. Is that anybody else? Pretty three, I've seen 3 to 6 ratios just from... Just from, and I'm standing in front of the camera, but from hydromorphone IV to oral, I've seen that ratio anywhere from three to six times the number. We say 7.5 divided by 1.5 is, is five times. And the reason the ratios may be different institutionally is because your patient populations differ. So we'll get together and make that decision. Yeah, so, yeah, and I, and I can, yeah, I'll summarize. So what we're saying is, depending upon your patient population, and what, what resources you are using to evaluate your ratios will affect what ratio you use. Are you looking at a cancer population? Are you looking at a palliative care population? Are you looking at you know, general med? Those will affect what ratio is utilized on these charts. That's why there's variance. Okay. So yeah, so dose-wise, what dose would you want to use for this patient? Normally we said it would be like a five milligram. And you could get five milligrams if you use the hydromorphone solution. So maybe four four milligrams. Again, if we're going to just maybe do a PRN dose, you might even start still might even do PRN only in this dose. What strengths of tablets? So hydromorphone comes in two and four milligrams, immediate release, and it comes in a one well, essentially one per one milligram. So well, yeah, it comes in a one per one. Five per five, which is one per one, right? Yeah. Eight, it does come in eight milligram tablet, but those can be hard to come by yeah. at times. Mm -hmm. so four milligrams. My colleague, uh, my colleague, what, what would you do for this patient? Two to four milligrams. Because again, our, our ratios can look very different, right? So you know that they're going to get more of the drug than anticipated. So that, that ratio is going, is, going to look, is going to look different, right? Good. I would agree. And the good thing is, is we, it's hard to be wrong. It, it can be wrong if you, if you give them way too much. It's hard to be wrong on either two or four. You will just have to evaluate your patient and follow up very, 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 very closely. Case five. So take a, take a minute and look at this, and then we will go through this. We'll go through this as our last case probably for our, our discussion today. Okay, Luke, edit this out. All right, so let's go ahead and talk about this case together real quick. So we have a 67-year-old with past medical history of CHF, di uh, diabetes um, on their diabetic neuropathy, end-stage renal disease. Patient has stopped dialysis and now is actively dying. Remembering that couching our recommendation, goals and prognosis are so important in how we drive our recommendations. Right, so goals and prognosis are mildly important.
In the past, they've used IV, IV uh, morphine at two milligrams a dose. So it's kind of like sniffing the bottle, right, of a dose of morphine. And it's worked well for our patients. Um, two to three doses in the past. Right, so, um, and now the question is, um, the patient is likely, very likely wants to be dying at home. You're converting them to sublingual medications. What opioid do you start and why? And I think there are two good answers here. So, from an idealistic standpoint, what opioid would you start here? Oxycodone. Oxycodone, because it's going to be a better option in a patient who has, who has ren renal failure, right? Because no metabolites. Oxycodone comes in different concentrated liquids. It comes in a 20 per one. It comes in a 5 per 5, which um, would be very hard to use, but 20 per one. So, then the question is, what dose of oxycodone would you give this patient? Yeah, so looking at the two milligrams of IV, uh, IV push morphines right around, you know, right around six milligrams of morphine equivalents. So you're looking somewhere between, I mean, two milligrams of oxycodone, but how the heck do you get that dose, right? Mm -hmm. So um, in these situations, oftentimes you just tell them to draw it up and give a couple of drops at a time. From a morality standpoint, just give a couple of drops. It's really hard to get any, any easier than that. Now the practicality is oxycodone solution can be very hard to come by. The 20 per one, a lot of pharmacies don't carry it. And it's about 300 bucks a bottle, being aware of that. So in this case, I heard some people talking about, can we just use liquid morphine? And to your, from your standpoint, those who are talking about it, I'm going to summarize the conversation for, for us here is the patient's actively dying. They're taking low doses, infrequent doses of morphine. I would probably just give them a very low dose liquid morphine and do it PRN and watch the patient very carefully. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that answer. It, ideally, is it the best answer? No, but I think in some situations you could talk yourself into that answer and it'd be okay. All right. So questions about our discussion today? There's a good get the mic around. Um, just going to this scenario with the CHF. Um, when we think about bowel wall edema and certain oral medications, we worry about absorption. Are there any algorithms or adjustments to be made in that situation for opiates? Excellent question. So the question um, was with bowel wall edema, even think about somebody who might have cirrhosis, heart failure. Bowel wall edema and its effect on absorption of medications can be real. It can sometimes slow down the anticipated um, absorption of medications and sometimes it can actually it can slow down gastric emptying and you can sometimes see a drug hang around longer in the gut so ideally if, they're, if you're if you are giving true sublingual absorption that's not a great concern but the reality is people don't don't get don't get sublingual absorption from oxynol or oxycodone it doesn't just it doesn't work all as well it's really a misnomer most people just trickles back and they swallow most of their sublingual oxynols and, and, and oxycodones of the world there's no, there's not an algorithm um, so this might be one where you recommend a sub Q butterfly even at home 
you might consider doing a subcube butterfly and leaving it there and going that if it's a fe if it's feasible. Otherwise, you just know that you might have all, uh, um, responses. You may have to adjust that dose based upon anticipated response. But yes, it may affect your response with that bowel wall edema. Yes, question. Just attempting to consolidate like the learning today. So I hear us working through the conversion mm -hmm. table from IV morphine to an PO version. And I hear us talking about the availability and understanding our resources. Can you talk more about morphine and ESRD? Just the Okay. Yeah, so looking at end-stage renal disease and what are opioids, particularly morphine. So morphine, we know, is metabolized through glucuronidation and is metabolized to M3G, morphine through glucuronide, which we know has some level of toxicity and can contribute to possibly having a patient develop opioid-induced neurotoxicity. So morphine is, your, is our opioid we're most concerned about in renal disease. Hydromorphone is probably right up there along with morphine as a concern because hydromorphone also gets hydromorphone 3-glucuronide, which are potentially toxic to our patients. So those metabolites are primarily excreted by the kidneys. So for not being excreted, they build up. When they build up, they at risk causing neurotoxicity. So that is why more often than not, in the face of renal sufficiency, you are likely picking opioids other than morphine, potentially hydromorphone. In this case scenario where the patient is actively dying, you have to ask how much of that metabolite will actually be building up because they are using it so infrequently. If this case scenario said they were using morphine regularly, different answer. We definitely are shying away from morphine. But because they're using it infrequently in small doses, you still might work yourself into being okay because of the clinical scenario. So thoughts from our pediatric folks? Any, any pearls? We'll get the mic back there for our pediatric. Any other pearls? Mm -hmm. No. So our, our pediatric um, colleagues said a good summary, so we, we should be okay. And there's no major differences in our pediatric population we've discussed. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you'll rate and review this podcast and share it with your colleagues and your friends. So you don't miss any of our new content, make sure you are subscribing to PCIC Podcasts. PCIC is sponsored by PalMed, where our aim is to advance palliative care globally and ensure all clinicians have the latest knowledge and skill. To access more PCIC content, please visit palmed.us to review our extensive open access PCIC curriculum.